Hi, I'm Richard Bond, and I am the producer and director of the Tupac Assassination movies. Over the last 12 years, I have learned a lot about Tupac, and I'd like to share with you what I know. Hey everybody, this is RJ Bond here, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of RJ Bond, What I Know, where we talk about the world of Tupac, the world of Biggie, and some of the things that I know and some of the things that I find out about it, and we talk about them, and I want to say thank you to everybody who's been giving out all of the uh, emails and the YouTube uh, feedback that, that I get. There's a lot of things that, uh, the great ideas that we're pursuing right now that uh, we're going to definitely get into uh, for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is season two now. And uh, the reason there was a break, you know, there's always a break between seasons. So uh, we did a break too. And you say, well, you had a season, but it only had seven shows. Yeah, tell that to Game of Thrones, right? You know, they did what, eight, eight episodes? So nowadays a season actually is like eight episodes. And then Everybody goes on break for a year, and then they come back later. Well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to put you out there for a year uh, to where there's no uh, uh, no no news or anything like that. Uh, we're going to bring the news to you as it happens. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen just recently, it's kind of coming back, and it's just weird because maybe it's a slow Tupac day. Maybe there's just not a lot to talk about. I don't know. But... I've been noticing that there's several different websites and one gets it and 12 pick it up after that. It's really stupid. But what I noticed was they started a conversation about the statue of Tupac Shakur that was present at the Tupac Shakur uh, Foundation, the Tupac Amaru Shakur Foundation in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And the statue was in a fountain. Uh, it was supposed to be a statue of Tupac. And the funny thing about it is that everybody's, you know, criticizing the statue. And they're like, oh, the statue doesn't look anything like Tupac. And, oh, it's a travesty. And, oh, it's this and, oh, it's that. You know, but the the foundation itself has been closed since, I mean, I want to say 2011, maybe 2012. It's been closed for a while. Um, I may not have the date right, but it's been closed for years. And, you know, there's been guys that have gone on the on the property. They had it fenced off the last time I went through that area. It was all fenced off with chain link fence. And, you know, people were able to still get in because that's how people do. They just trespass. But the whole area was fenced off. And, you know, we have a little bit of background with that because Tupac Assassination 2, uh, which was called Reckoning at the time, um, I think it was later called Aftermath. But anyway, the second part of the assassination series was actually shot there at the Stone Mountain facility, the Tupac Shakur Foundation um, there. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen the statue personally and, and I've seen uh, the rest of the grounds there and what they were trying to do. And, you know... You, you got to wonder about people that complain about things. I mean, you know, people must have a lot of time on their hands and nothing better to do that they're going to sit around and complain that a statue that existed, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that doesn't look like Tupac, that, you know, um, that they, they, they found something to complain about. You must have a lot of time on your hands to do that. I don't understand it personally, but that's all right. It is what it is, right? Um, but the statue, yeah, okay, it does not look like Tupac. It is an image, the way it was explained to me by Afeni, 
was that it was an image of what Tupac was ordained to be. The nice suit, the Bible in the hand, the rose, you know, all of these, those were symbolic things. And, and you know, unfortunately, the, the idiots on the Internet, they can't get that right and think that it's all supposed to be literal. Doesn't even look like Tupac. Well, you know, it. It's an artistic representation. I mean, go look at any of the paintings in a museum and look at the uh, pictures that they've painted of people. I mean, you know, this is not a presidential sitting where they had to make a statue that looked exactly like it. The statue in Philadelphia of uh, uh, the boxer that sits at the uh, art museum there, you know, the Rocky Stairs and Rocky and Rocky Three. there was a statue that was supposed to be a statue of Rocky Balboa and uh, that statue actually stands to this day I was able to go out and see it uh, last year and the statue stands you look at the statue it doesn't look like Sylvester Stallone it looks kind of like Sylvester Stallone a little bit but overall it just kind of looks generic it's got like a generic face a generic statue face and the hair is a little bit longer to kind of remind you of the style of hair that Stallone had in Rocky III but really, when it comes down to it, it's the boxer trunks and the gloves and everybody says, oh, that's Rocky Balboa. There it is. So, you know, I've seen statues. I've seen tons of statues. And again, these are artist renditions. I mean, my God, the fact that people, like I said, have the time to sit around and, and grouse that a statue doesn't look good. They completely missed the point because the statue was in the middle of a fountain that had all kinds of lyrics from his songs it was actually quite nice. Uh, he, the statue stood on top of a cross. Uh, the fountain was generally full. When we were there, they were having trouble with the fountain, so the fountain wasn't full. Uh, we were able to actually step across it, and that's how Frank and I both got pictures with the, you know, actually next to the statue. And um, we shot a lot of that on the grounds there uh, in the prayer garden. I think that the ambition there was bigger than the budget was. Um, you know, sadly, <clears throat> and this is a little referendum on it, Afini gave some money to the Tupac Amaru Shakur Foundation to get it started. But then she really kept the money that was being generated by Tupac's music and Tupac's record sales uh, away from the foundation. Uh, so Afini was making money hand over fist with the Tupac catalog what what money she was making because you know after a lot of people really kind of screwed her over hiding tapes and doing all kinds of stuff it's arguable about how much money she made but they said that she made millions of dollars so i'm just going to roll with that and she took that those millions of dollars and she kept it in her south carolina property and did whatever she would do go out on boats and things that she would do with the money and the foundation, meanwhile, who was was being run by Gloria Cox, who Aunt Glow was Tupac's biological aunt, um, the foundation was struggling. Uh, they they were trying to raise their own money. It was set up to raise its own money. Uh, you know, it just did not have the funds, and it was clear. Um, and you know, it goes back to the, the old saying. You know, there's a whole bunch of Tupac quote unquote fans out there, and Tupac people that are you know, big fans, but when it comes right down to it, the foundation failed because the fans didn't support it. And that's a shame because there was a lot of really nice things at the foundation and it was doing a lot of good things for the general public. But Afini was not supporting it, not really. Um, and, uh, you know, she was lending her name to it and she would go there and be Tupac's mom and add that 
credibility to it, like almost like a celebrity endorsement. Uh, but other than that, there wasn't a lot of financial support for it. Uh, Glow was always talking about how that they needed to raise more money and they didn't have enough money. And they went through several different like directors and people who were trying to do community outreach to try to get that done. And there was just not a lot of money there uh, for the foundation because none of the proceeds from Tupac's record sales went to the went to the foundation. And the foundation itself was actively involved in the community. They would do community dance uh, plays. They would do very, very much the um, arts and arts and theater type of uh, experience like the performing arts schools would do. And they made it free or a minimal cost to underprivileged children in Atlanta to go to that and do that and participate in the uh, the arts and participate in the dance and the, the acting drama, uh, all of that. And, and they had several plays there. Uh, that was the location where they did the first birthday celebration, which I was a part of the first birthday, Tupac birthday celebration in Atlanta. Um, and that was good. And, and again, you know, um, it, it, it was sad to me because the foundation could have been so much more and it, I think it had the right vision. I think it had the right goals there uh but the Shakur Foundation was more about kind of the work like Lila Steinberg's doing who was Tupac's former manager she is into the outreach where she is talking to kids about not being Tupac and not trying to crib Tupac but trying to understand his drive understand his determination understand his uh willingness to be able to uh, achieve in, in, in this face of all the obstacles that were out there. He didn't let being poor, he didn't let a lot of the the problems that somebody would make excuses for not succeeding would have. And he, he hung it all out there. And so when you look at the substance of, of what the foundation was trying to do, it was trying to invoke the spirit of Tupac and there were a lot of paintings on the walls of Tupac some looked like Tupac some didn't look like Tupac and there was the statue and the statue didn't look a lot like Tupac but it was there and you know that was no I don't think anybody really made the reference that oh that's an exact duplicate of Tupac no it was it was in with a bunch of other um artwork and it was uh, very supposed to be conceptual about the legacy that Tupac left behind and uh, people were able to go there and meditate in the garden. It was a place for reflection that you could pray in the garden. There was a prayer garden you could walk through many walking paths. It was very nice. And, you know, and I've heard over the years that, you know, somebody else bought it and they're supposed to be doing something with it. And of course, it's all big talk and nothing ever happens. I think a lot, everybody waits to see whether or not the Shakur, uh, you know, family or the Shakur Foundation or whatever the case might be uh, is, uh, you know, going to going to step up, going to do something about it. Uh, I know that Afini left most of the money to charity. Um Will be interesting to see what it shakes out for the Tupac Amaru Shakur Foundation. We'll see how that checks out. Anyway, so that's that about the statue. I mean, I know it's a lot, kind of a lot there about it, but you know, I'm I'm a little offended by the people that make noise about it because I understand I was there, and it was one of those things where you just kind of had to be there. Okay, Mike. 
Did you leave death row or right way on your own accord or were you fired? I actually left death row on my own accord. I was, um, I put in my work for him. I did my time with him and I talked to Reggie Wright about it. Reggie Wright and me had different opinions on, on security and I think I spent a year and a half with death row after that and then I walked. Before you left, did uh, you ever have any conversation uh, with Shiv Knight prior to you leaving uh, Death Row and Right Way Security? Yes, uh, I did have a, I went to the prison, talked to him and let him know I was leaving. Why did you do that? Why would you go to the prison to tell Shiv you were leaving security? I was hired by Mr. Knight when I first got started in this and I felt it was the thing to do to let him know, hey, I was leaving. I had some loyalty to death row, and I still do. I just think that it was the thing to do, talk to Mr. Knight, let him know that I was leaving, so that I can be clear of death row to myself. Okay. Did you ever witness any threats made by Suge against Tupac or vice versa? There were some threats made in both directions when we were in New York over what had happened over the radio. They were screaming back and forth at each other and how I seen it, they both threatened each other. Tupac's threat being the biggest threat by saying he wants out, he wants to leave. And like I explained earlier, that covered Machiavelli because I had no idea what Machiavelli was and he was screaming Machiavelli at the top of his lungs. So, looking back on it now, knowing what Machiavelli is, it was Tupac saying, you can have Machiavelli, but I want my freedom. Rest in peace, Michael Moore. Rest in peace, Frank Alexander. I miss Frank a lot. Frank was a lot of fun, and Frank was with me at the Shakur Foundation. That was actually the same weekend that we were honored by the Spaghetti Junction Film Festival. That's the Atlanta Film Festival that uh, is an independent film festival and they do workshops and all that and Tupac Assassination Battle for Compton was actually nominated for its and won its red carpet selection premiere so we got to walk the red carpet and there's pictures of that maybe one day I can get some pictures of that out onto the uh, um, Battle for Compton website that's kind of where I post and hang out and put pictures up maybe we can get that out there but uh, yeah, we uh, had a screening of the movie and, you know, to the people that are detractors and think that what Frank and I weren't doing was it got any traction at all with the family, the Tupac Shakur family showed up at our screening of the movie and we're there. We've got the pictures to show it and they lent their support and that, that meant a lot. Uh, my only regret was that we weren't able to pull the family's involvement together until actually we were there shooting that day. And they asked us why we were there. You know, they knew why we were there. We're shooting a new one. And uh, we mentioned casually to Gloria Cox that um, we were going to be participating in this, you know, film festival. And and so all of the attendants by the family kind of came together at the 11th hour. It was all kind of last minute uh, that they would show up there at the film festival and, and watch the movie with us. And, you know, they had already seen the movie. The Foundation had seen the the assassination, um, conspiracy or revenge, the first one, because we vetted it with their attorneys. When we did the documentary, we actually went to the Shakur 
uh, family. We went to Afeni and we asked for her blessing on the movie and we went to New York to her attorney, Donald David at the time and got the movie screened and vetted and we went, uh, got their feedback, their comments, made some changes to the movie based on that. And, you know, so the movie was, they weren't a stranger to the movie. They knew about the movie and they'd seen the movie. But seeing it in a public place on a movie theater screen with a with crowd of hundreds of people, that's kind of a cool thing. And uh, so we did that. So I guess that makes three public screenings of Tupac Assassination Battle for Compton at the movies. Uh, we did one in New York. We did one in Atlanta. And we did one in Los Angeles. So it's a total of three of them. Not too shabby for a low-budget uh, Tupac documentary. But uh, anyway, somebody else that's uh, trying to put together a documentary and, and get pretty active on the scene these days is former Biggie bodyguard Gene Deal. And uh, Gene has come out, you know, and said, you know, many things. He has many opinions about the Tupac case. Of course, he wasn't there and wasn't a witness to it. So he's, you know, has inside information that he claims he has, you know, and, and of course those can be taken worth whatever weight they've got, but it's still hearsay information. Now, you know, but the biggie thing is completely different because Eugene Deal was there. He was an eyewitness to the things that were going on there. And interestingly enough, uh, Gene Deal actually had some things to say to Phil Carson, and Phil Carson, uh, we were lucky enough to have him recount what Eugene Deal was saying, and Eugene Deal definitely did not believe and does not believe that it was a gang-related activity. So uh, check this out. This is Phil Carson talking about Gene Deal. And I can remember Big Gene. In fact, if you were to if you were to talk to Big Gene, he'll he'll tell you probably the exact same story. He specifically said, "Phil, he goes." Everybody in the FBI thinks like we can wiretap everybody's phones and, you know, they think that we can, and, and who am I to ever uh, take away from that image that everybody thinks that what we can do and we can solve cases within an hour like on TV. So Big Gene's tell me, Phil, get that photo, unblur it, and that's your murder. That is the guy that committed the murder. How did he know that? He told me that from all the security that he's done, he's he's pretty familiar with this whole. Um, I just want to make sure I'm politically correct with everything. There's a look that and, and a sense of how they carry themselves and being very respectful of how Islamic people are. And there had been an earlier confrontation with, I want to say it was Louis Farrakhan's son. And some of these Islamic people were kind of, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to screw up the story, but the way Big Gene explained it to me is, is Phil, <clears throat> I know a what, what is it called, the uh, fruits of Islam person. He he knows the look, he knows how they act, he knows how they dress, he knows the company that they keep in. Um, it's. It's a stereotype, but it's a cultural thing that it just, it, it, it is what it is. It's true. And Big Gene is pretty well versed in that, he told me. And he goes, Phil, he goes, from the things that happened inside that automotive museum, he goes, I was talking to some of these Fruits of Islam people. He goes, I know how they are. He goes, this guy tried to portray himself as a Fruit of Islam person, and he wasn't. He was there for something else. And that was the guy that he felt was a shooter. And he said... He goes, there's a photo, and they showed it to me. If you can unblur that photo, that's your killer. I said, all right, I'm going to get that photo. 
and nobody can find that photo. And certain people would be allowed to hang out with <clears throat> certain celebrities or talent, and Louis Farrakhan, and I know his son, with the notoriety that they carry and the company that they can have, they could they could walk around and and go up to Sean Combs and say, hey, you know, nice to meet you, love your music, uh, hope you get an award, whatever like that. And they could have a couple of their buddies with it. This guy was not one of those guys. And in talking with Gene, in talking with um, Little C's, in talking with uh, the other people that, uh, God, who else were the other people that were there? Because they were the main two guys. Some of the other guys that I, I mean, I interviewed them all. Um, God, I can't think of their names right now. I know Paul Offord was a, I think he was one of the PD guys that was there. But just their whole group, the way that, who they described, there was no question they were all describing the same person. Uh, about what he was wearing, the color of his light blue suit, his hairline, his bow tie, his height, his weight. Everybody was able to describe who this person was. Well, that same person is this photo. And, and this so we put all that together, and the fact that that was a guy that made a beeline straight for, for Puffy's car, Big Gene intercepted him, Big Gene had a gun on himself, he said he kind of, without brandishing it, he kind of displayed like, dude, you don't want part of me type thing. Um, the totality of all that, it, it was this guy. Yeah, that was uh, Phil Carson talking about Gene. And, you know, Gene gives tribute to Russ Poole. And, you know, Russ Poole's missed, too. Um, Russ had a lot to do with the Biggie investigation in its early stages. And I really wish that City of Lies would have come out. But, you know, when you really want to see uh, what Russ's involvement was, I'm not saying they portrayed him right in the later years, but in the early years, they kind of got the facts right and unsolved about what Russ was doing and, and the kind of detective that he was. And, you know, interestingly enough, when we were listening to the uh, interview with Phil Carson, one of the things that Phil Carson brought up, and it's a great point, and I'm going to play it for you, is that, you know, in the Biggie case, Russ Poole did not have access to FBI records. In fact, Russ Poole tried to get access to Vegas police records, and he couldn't get them. They didn't let him have them. Uh, but uh, he tried to get them, and he tried to get the records uh, from wherever he could. But, you know, the FBI is doing their own thing and doing their own case, and they don't feel compelled or obligated to share with the LAPD. And so Russ Poole didn't have any of the other cases that were being worked by the FBI. And one of the things that Phil Carson brings to light is the fact that he had two other cases, the Paul Marrow's case and at least one other case that had some of the same players as he calls them the same people involved dirty cops and some of the same names that were involved in the biggie case uh that were in those other cases and of course russ Poole didn't know about those other cases because they were federal cases and the fbi was investigating them so there was really an interesting dynamic that phil brings to the conversation and talks about his his efforts here and uh because i'm just that kind of generous guy i'm going to play a little bit more and Phil Carson talking about Russ Poole and uh, in the investigation. I don't know if people really put together the fact that when one of the search warrants um, 
uh, on David Mack's uh, house from the bank robbery. And again, understand, you've got the LAPD search warrant and you've got then an FBI search warrant. And I can't remember which one. But again, they find a gold-plated gun. They find it's a 9mm. And oh, by the way, they find 9mm Luger uh, bullets at his house. Individually, that can't convict somebody of something. But again, when you take the totality of everything, people that are looking at all these other, like I said, these other three cases that I'm familiar with, and the evidence in those three cases, because they were all adjudicated, and I have access to all that evidence, and I can apply that to what I have over here in the Biggie case, certain stuff in this Biggie case, it may not mean anything. But if you know what evidence is over here, something that looks immaterial over here now carries some significance. Or finding the Luger shell or, or a gold-plated 9mm gun over here may not mean anything. But if you were also part of the Biggie case and you know that people saw like a silver-plated um, 9mm gun, you, see, you start seeing there's a lot, there's just a lot of similarities. And, and a lot of this... Some of this stuff is what what um, what Russ Poole uncovered, and it's one of those things where. And I know a lot of people like to say, "Oh, he keeps going down this theory." No, his theory is correct. I mean, I again from Russ Poole has never had access to any of these other cases over here under these FBI cases. Nobody at LAPD has had access to these cases. People that worked Rampart. Other than L.J. Connolly, didn't work the Paul Maros case with me. The two LAPD guys that worked the Paul Maros case with me, they had nothing to do with the Rampart case and had nothing to do with the bank robbery case. The bank robbery case guys, they had nothing to do with the Paul Maros case, the Rampart case, or the Biggie case. So you can't expect everybody to put all two and two together because nobody even knows about these other cases other than what they read, and they sure as hell don't know any of the evidence. Well, I had access to all that stuff. And, and you're that's the only, only and I'm the only, yeah, too. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why when I had access to all this stuff and I put it all together and I gave it to my bosses, they said, Yeah, you're not looking into solving a murder. You're looking into solving a murder that involved the LAPD orchestrating it. And that's what got it. If they didn't think that there was that connection I'm not going to look into it. I don't do murder cases. So again, that's why I tell people when I first started kind of talking to to some of these people, um, you know, Don and Justin and, and some of these other people that, that did the Daily Beast and that are doing some of these other things. When they first contacted about the Biggie case, that that's going to get the attention. But until you get a full understanding, and this takes days and days and days to literally go over it, then it's, I don't want to say it's a no-brainer, but it, it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I can understand why LAPD, in conjunction with the city attorney's office and, and bringing Chuck Phillips to the LA Times, I can understand why they did not want this case made. I don't fucking care what Burko says or anybody else at LAPD says. To say that, hey, 
we can take a $500 million hit or we can take another huge publicity hit even after the Rampart case and the consent decree, even after what happened in the Palmeros case, even after having this disgraced officer convicted of bank robbery, of which he's never even told about where the money is and who the accomplices were, who I believe I know the accomplices were because they were involved in the Rampart case as well and they were on our radar screen. And none of that... You gotta, people need to remember, David Mack had not been arrested for his bank robbery and the Rampart case had not even been wasn't even a case until after the Biggie murder. So it's not like all these people are still in play and these cases haven't even begun when the Biggie murder happens. They were all still, you know, on the force and, and all part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'll put together a prosecutive report mm-hmm. and it's probably, I don't know, maybe quarter inch thick or so. And I will list, it's, it's almost like a, it's like a small book, a very, very, very small book. And it'll be a table of contents, and I put down um, witnesses that I've interviewed that provide some information that have some part to do with, uh, with this murder and, and some of the evidence. I'll list, what did I list? Eight to ten? I think it was like, yeah, it was like maybe eight or nine in different individual sources that all point the finger at who I believe helped orchestrate the murder. They're all independent of each other. So it's not like I go to a family of six people and they're all telling me the same story and then you can over-exaggerate, hey, I've got six different sources when you really only have one. These people have nothing to do with each other. So they all independently, in their own way, provide information that ultimately points... To, to the same person or persons that were involved or helped orchestrate this. The evidence that I have from this case, when you add it to the evidence of these other cases and you bring it together, um, it's, like any, it's like any circumstantial case. One, one piece of evidence is never enough to convict somebody but when it's time and time and time again, um, there, there's enough circumstantial evidence to, I believe, that can kind of put it all together and, and point to who was involved in it. Because what it does is it, it all independently corroborates the other evidence, too. Um, and you just can't, you can't manufacture circumstantial evidence that then corroborates other manufactured circumstantial evidence. I mean, yeah, at some point... It, it, it creates such a bind that it's unbreakable. Yeah, it does create a bind that's unbreakable. It's a great way to put it. And i you know thankful for Phil Carson and his efforts. And it's really an overlooked uh, angle of the case, aspect of the case. Uh, I mean, he's probably the guy who knows more. And I certainly wouldn't believe when a guy like Mr. Kading says that Phil Carson doesn't have anything. I mean, you know, we... We're hearing a lot of this these days, people trying to get ahead of things by saying that people don't know what they're talking about and stuff like that. But, you know, the the Burko case, not the Burko case, the um, uh, Palmeros case and some other uh, uh, cases that he was working there from a federal standpoint, you know, they need to be looked at. Those cases need to be looked at and they need to see who the players are. Uh, it's the Palmeras case, I believe, is the, the name of the case. I said Palmeros earlier, but I think it's the Palmeras case. I think that's how he's saying it. 
Um, I'm going to check into it. I hope that you check into it too. And, uh, you know, we'll see what, uh, see what's cooking there, but, uh, I'm excited for the time that, uh, Phil Carson will be able to get to say what he has to say, uh, in terms of the investigation, what other information he has. So that's going to do it for the show. Now I want you to, uh, any questions or comments that you have, RJ Bond, uh, what I know at outlook.com again, RJ Bond, what I know at outlook.com. I am good about trying to answer the, uh, uh, emails when they come in and, uh, get to back with you about it uh i'm hoping all is well it's very windy in california today but uh we'll get through it and again thanks for tuning in and until next week it's rj bond and that's what i know this one go out to all my thugs worldwide all those hustling in the streets all those locked up behind the cell blocks